I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series called Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. In the recent history of documentary filmmaking, one scene stands out above all. The hot mic bathroom confession of Robert Durst in The Jinx. Now the person responsible for that moment, Sereb Kaufman, stepson of the victim, friend of the murderer, star of the documentary, for the first time ever, shares why he believes you're watching the furthest thing from the truth on this exclusive episode of Murder Homes. Listen to Murder Homes on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister, starting May 6th on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. We're back and we're suing the cops. <laughs> uh, Tuck and I just had a conversation in between episodes about the fact that both of us and everyone we know is suing the Portland police in some way. <laughs> Mm-hmm. It's, it's mm-hmm. fun. Um, yeah, and how it's just so much mm-hmm. a part of life that I just forget about it. And then yeah. every once in a while I remember that um, I am suing the yeah. city of Portland. <laughs> yeah. Uh, good times. I don't love lawsuits, but they <laughs> happen. Um, yeah. So, Tuck, how are you? Has, has life changed radically for you in the last five minutes? Yeah, I got a kombucha now. Oh, so wow. I, everything's looking up. What that, that is a huge improvement. What flavor? Mm-hmm. Um, grapefruit. Ooh, mm-hmm. nice. Is it exciting? Good? I just want to know uh, all I, the information. <laughs> you know, I haven't opened it yet, but I'll tell you. Yeah, uh, I'll I'm, some sure, I'm sure it's great. Robert, what are you <laughs> drinking? I have a Diet Orange Crush. Um, and oh. actually, pretty recently, I waterboarded a friend of mine with Diet Orange Crush as an experiment. And it turns out it's terrible. I am shocked painful. that if you combine, yeah, if you combine diet orange crush and waterboarding, it's bad. Like, mm-hmm. I know. Hmm. Well, I can update this kombucha is good. Fantastic. That's great. I what are you drinking, Sophie? It's a bramble berry hibiscus tea. Oh, wow. Cold. Everyone's fancy today. That's a very, well, I don't know if Orange Crush is very fancy. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. There's several words involved in describing it. It's not like water, you know? It's like diet, <laughs> no, orange no. crush, bramble, yeah. berry, iced tea. A lot like, of consonants. Now that a, you guys are just 
hooked on this conversation. <laughs> this is the whole podcast. Yeah. Is, I've decided that it's going to be too bleak to keep going with this conversation. Yeah. And so I'm going to talk about beverages for an hour. Yeah. Welcome to Behind the Beverages, the podcast <laughs> where we talk about things that you drink. Yeah. Uh, so no, this is, right. this is a podcast about bad people. Um, the worst people. And today we're talking again about the Portland Police Association and kind of just about the Portland police, uh, which is shockingly one of the most influential police departments and unions in the entire country. Maybe the most you could make a case, although the NYPD is the NYPD. Um, so after <laughs> after single handedly doing more damage to Portland's economy than the decades of protests that would follow, the Portland Police Association was in a pretty good position as 1970 dawned. Their first big test of the modern era came in May of that year, when students and faculty at Portland State University went on strike to protest the Kent State shootings and the Vietnam War. After four days, the protesters struck an agreement with the city to end the strike. So that's good, right? Protesters go on strike in solidarity over a shooting in another state. The city's like, we get what you're doing. Let's negotiate a way to bring this to an end. And they negotiate a way to bring this to an end. Sounds ideal and very democratic. But mm -hmm. before the protesters could start to disassemble the structures they'd set up for the occupation, the Portland police riot control team showed up to take down a hospital tent. Protesters felt betrayed by this since they had already worked out a plan to end the strike with the city. They walled off the tent with their bodies. This pissed off the riot cops, who are more or less the same as the riot cops we have today. The riot squad tear-gassed the students and professors and then charged into the gas cloud to beat them with batons. Yep. <sighs> Sounds <It's>, right. <laughs> Sounds, Sounds right. like what they do. Yeah. One officer noted that the violence was not pretty, but the streets <laughs> were cleared, which again would have happened if the cops hadn't shown up. <laughs> right. Yeah. An activist who was present, uh, Lester Lamb, recalled his friend's head being split open like a pumpkin by a riot cop's baton. 31 people went to the hospital for injuries sustained from police violence. Um, the whole mess set off an avalanche of condemnation from local media, which had either ignored or been critical of the protests before the cops beat everybody up. After what became called the Park Block Riots, the PPB faced some of the first mass criticism for violence to protesters in its history. This was largely due to the fact that its victims had been mostly white. Um, go figure. The bad PR was enough that the Portland Police Bureau made a public statement where they agreed to never use force against nonviolent protesters again. Oh, cool. <laughs> yeah, they made a promise. <laughs> well, that was, it's so nice how that paved the way for mm -hmm. them just being so chill and cool today. Yeah. That's why, for example, when people sat in an intersection last May, they did not beat them in the face with sticks. Mm -mm, no, <laughs> that would go against their motorists. promise. That would go against their promise. <laughs> <laughs> The controversy over the Park Block riots faded soon enough, and the Portland Police Association succeeded in winning another contract in 1972, and yet more money. They withdrew from the International Police Union they'd helped to start in March of that year, after deciding that it lacked focus and direction. The Portland Police Association was now an independent union, because uh, they also pulled out of AFSCME, with no ties to any national organization. It remains that way to this day. Loyal to no one but itself. Pretty good. Yeah, they don't want any influences that might give them like a conscience or something. No, you know, no, they not really gotta <laughs> stay pure to their ideology. Not even influences that would lead them to support other cops who weren't Portland cops. Right. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty good. 
<sighs> so the PPA had ensured that its officers were highly paid and basically unaccountable. Now that the precedent had been set that Portland cops could go on strike if they were angry and crater the local economy, there was very little that the city government could hold over them. As you might expect, this emboldened the worst officers in the department to carry out acts of horrifying racial violence. On March 14th, 1975, Portland police officer Kenneth Sanford shot 17-year-old Ricky Johnson in the back, killing him. Johnson was the fourth person of color shot and killed by Portland police in five months, and his death ignited a citywide outrage. The details of the killing were just sketchy enough that even the city's white majority couldn't all sit by and pretend it hadn't happened. In essence, two kids with an empty, broken gun had been ordering Chinese food and then robbing cab drivers who dropped it off. One of those drivers called the cops and they set up a sting operation. Now, despite the fact that everything in the PPB's bylaws said that this kind of operation should only be conducted by multiple officers— they sent one guy in. They dressed him up as a cab driver, and he had a gun hidden in an empty to-go box of food. Uh, when he showed up at the house, the kids pulled a gun on him, so he pulled his own gun. What happened next is debated. The cop claimed that Ricky knelt down and prepared to fire, so he shot the boy dead. Ricky's friend claimed that both boys ran like hell and dropped the gun immediately, and then the officer shot Ricky in the back. The physical evidence supported the second version of events. Investigators found the broken gun 10 feet away from Ricky's body, and Ricky had been shot in the back of the head, which probably wouldn't have happened if he'd been facing the officer. Just physics and such. Many white Portlanders were able to see that, while armed robbery is, you know, not good, shooting a fleeing robber in the back of the head is worse. The rage was augmented by the fact that the PPB had murdered, again, three other black men over the course of the last several months. All of the cases had been sketchy in some way. Kenneth Allen, age 27, was murdered in a prostitution sting. His death was ruled a justifiable homicide because he had a gun. But the gun was never found and introduced into evidence. The cops just said that he had one. And also he was shot multiple times in the back. Um, hmm. Yeah, it's just fucking me up a little bit how, I guess this isn't PPA because it's right across the river, or PPB, yeah. but like such a similar thing is happening like right now across the river in Vancouver. And it's like, yeah. cool, just, just how it goes forever. Just how it goes forever. This is the song that never ends. Mm. Charles Minifree was killed after a 20-mile car chase, which started when Canby, Oregon cops pulled him over without probable cause. Eyewitnesses report that Minifee had his hands in the air and was standing outside his car when he was shot to death. None of the witnesses to his death or the witnesses to any of the other deaths of black men killed by Portland police during this period were called to testify in court. And again, all of these men were black men who lived in Albina. Uh, none of their deaths provoked any outcry until Officer Sanford shot Ricky Johnson in the back of the head. Everyone living in the year of the George Floyd uprising knows how this works. It's kind of impossible to predict when the violent death of a person of color at the hands of cops will provoke outrage in enough white people that the police actually have to address it. Um, but it did here. Um, and I should note here that in 1972, there were also plenty of back the blue types who defended the PPB from all of its murdering. I'm going to quote from Catherine Nelson again here. One citizen even sent Officer Sanford, who shot the 17-year-old, a $20 check for his vacation fund and offered to provide him with a babysitter. The donor, Esther Nichols, stated that the community cannot say or accept that black is bad, so it has to be the police that are wrong. <laughs> what? Yeah, I'll, I'll read that again. Esther Nichols, who gave money to the cop that killed that guy, stated that the community cannot say or accept that black is bad, so it has to be the police that are wrong. Cool, Esther. Fuck. You seem chill. <laughs> you seem rad, Esther. Fuck yeah. off, Esther. <laughs> Thanks for being really openly racist as opposed to just claiming you support cops. Uh, right. That's 
at least honest. She's like the progenitor of all the cop GoFundMe's now, but it's yeah. just one person named Esther. Being yeah. Like, you seem cool. Yeah. Uh, Johnson's death revealed that a large portion of Portland's white residents held racist views and respected the decision of the police to use extreme violence against black citizens. Uh, meanwhile, Johnson's death inspired black Portlanders to create the Black Justice Committee. Uh, the BJC teamed up with several existing advocacy organizations to push the city to order an inquest into Johnson's death. A public inquest is essentially a trial that occurs after a suspicious death, and it was hoped that this would make it clear that criminal behavior had been you know, evident on behalf of the officer involved. Uh, the Portland Black Student Union was another uh, group that pushed for the same cause. Now, an awful lot of Portlanders were willing to support a public inquest. This was a very popular cause. It was, after all, a pretty basic thing to do and not exactly a revolutionary demand. Like, we should investigate the suspicious killing is you can get most people on board that thing. There were, however, some bootlickers who thought this went too far. Opponents of the inquest wrote into local papers complaining that Johnson's death was being turned into a race issue. Watford Reed of Portland wrote a letter to the police chief in which he complained that a public inquest would prove black people people are privileged in portland <clears throat> pardon <laughs> if we investigate when they're murdered for... they're privileged <laughs> oh god fucking jellical cat shit where everyone's just like the actually the most privileged thing would just be to ascend to the heavens right now <laughs> uh <laughs> It would be fun if his argument was like, well, no, this planet is terrible, and being yeah, able exactly. to ascend out of life is a privilege. <laughs> yeah. uh. Uh. Mayor Neil Goldschmidt, who was basically the same as every other mayor Portland has ever had, knew that outrage over the Johnson shooting was too popular for him to come out against uh, the inquest, but he was also terrified of the PPA, who were clearly more powerful than the city government. So Goldschmidt tried to thread the needle by supporting the inquest in order to appease the liberals and stating publicly that he expected Officer Sanford to be totally vindicated. Uh, he actually announced that he thought the inquest would be a good opportunity for black Portlanders to learn why it was totally okay to shoot a 17-year-old in the back of the head. <laughs> like, great mayor. Solid mayoring. He does sound a bit like our current mayor. Yeah, I was going to say, what I love about Portland yeah. is all the good mayors. Yeah, <laughs> all the great mayors that we have here. So the PPA's president at this point was a total dickbag named Stan Peters, uh, which is a dickbag name. Like, a, it's a name <laughs> of a jerk. Like, uh, so he was, Peters was enraged by even the mild support the mayor gave to the idea of an inquest. Um, he was just like, this is like the fact that you would even question one of my cops shooting somebody is offensive to me. Uh, the police chief was a little bit more reasonable uh, and decided the benefits of having an inquest outweighed the risks. In the end, the inquest happened and it revealed some pretty damning stuff about the conduct of Portland police officers from Catherine Nelson. Witnesses who testified included Melva Thrower, a neighbor on North Gandonbean. She testified that the officers used profanity and handled Zachary roughly upon his arrest. That was the other kid who was with the kid who got shot to death. She stated that they threw Zachary on top of the police car before tossing him into the back seat. When Zachary asked about Johnson, they said, that bitch is dead, and asked, where does that motherfucker live? Instead of focusing on the treatment of Zachary, Moore questioned the officers about Thrower's testimony and asked if they used profanity. The officers admitted that profanity was used, but they couldn't remember what profanities. Another officer claimed that he heard loud language, but could not determine that they were profanities. After the assistant district attorney questioned Stanford, the six-person jury voted as to whether Sanford should be held accountable. The vote returned five to one that Sanford's actions were justifiable. The only black jury member casted the sole vote against Sanford's innocence. So, 
lots going on there. One is that after hearing that they had referred to, they had like said that bitch is dead and asked where he lived uh, and all that sort of stuff and had abused uh, an arrested person. The district attorney's concern was that they'd used profanity, which is fascinating. The real problem here. The the real issue. Cops are cursing. (laughs) You can murder people, but you can't call them a bitch afterwards. Mm -hmm. That's Mm -hmm. offensive. Mm -hmm. That's going to make people angry. (laughs) Yeah. Um, and yeah, also that obviously all of the white people on the jury voted that the cop was right to shoot that kid. And, uh, the only black jury member was the only vote against his innocence. Uh, I will state here that the story did not end happily for officer Sanford. Despite being described as a model officer prior to the shooting, Sanford received increasing complaints about his performance after the inquest. He was suspended from duty in 1975 for accepting a gift from a citizen and in 1977 for the use of illegal drugs while off duty. Later that year, he was put on permanent disability for PTSD. And this next bit is interesting. Not that I expect people to have sympathy for this guy, but that it makes the point that the Portland Police Union is actually bad for officers in some ways, too. Mm -hmm. The PPB's culture of resistance, supported by the PPA, negated Sanford's professional and moral accountability. PPA President Stan Peters claimed Sanford would receive psychological help after Johnson's death, yet there is no evidence that he did. To so easily brush aside Johnson's death as justifiable emphasized not only the inadequate services Portland police officers received from the Bureau— but also the unspoken norm that black lives did not matter. This obviously and ultimately disrespected the sacredness of black lives throughout Portland and questioned the worth of black people. Kind of like it's bad for everyone for white supremacy to be enshrined by institutions. Arguably, but does that stop it? (laughs) Sure doesn't. No, No, not at all. Hey, this is bad for everyone. Should we stop it in the next 50 years? No. No. Absolutely not. Let's keep having the same fight. (laughs) Why not? We don't have anything else to do in society. Everything else is good. Yeah. Everything else is smoothing, just chugging right along. Like that train the police used to shoot longshoremen from. (laughs) (laughs) So the rest of the early 70s continued the by now well-worn pattern of Portland police only suffering consequences when they offended the white majority with their actions. In 1975, the Bureau was rocked by a series of scandals in the Narcotics Division, most of which revolved around the fact that the entire Narcotics Division was addicted to illegal drugs. One PPB detective (laughs) testified that narcotics officers frequently did huge amounts of cocaine before going out on drug raids. (laughs) I mean, I'm going to be honest. I've seen them riding along in their riot vans and thought (laughs) it would be fun to do a fuckload of blow and then like hang off the side of a Ford F-350 rolling around the streets. (laughs) That does seem rad. (laughs) Is it's just like how not subtle it is that just like mm-hmm. makes my brain explode where it's like, yeah. let us do drugs before busting people for drugs for we drugs. Are good. Cause that way we'll have more drugs. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Which is we actually what all happened. of our drugs getting ready to use. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. It's a perfect cycle. There is at least one clear case of the PPB murdering and then faking the suicide of a drug dealer in order to get his mm. heroin. Um, good. Good guys. Portland narcotics cops. Uh, And in fact, when that dead kid's mom pressed for an investigation into his death, she received a phone call from a white dude who was probably a Portland narcotics officer. He told her to back off on the investigation unless she wanted more family members dead. Oh! (laughs) Yeah. That's good. Um, (laughs) Good policing. Good, fine, that's fine police work. 
So the uh, Detective Dupay, who is the, uh, I guess, the best Portland cop we're going to talk about in this. He's the one who reported that Portland narcotics officers were doing a shitload of blow before going out on drug raids. Uh, He investigated the murder of this drug dealer, and he submitted a report to the police chief with his findings, which were pretty damning to the Portland Police Bureau. Years later, when he attempted to get a copy of the report, I think to give to a reporter, but I'm not sure, a clerk told him that it had been shredded as soon as he filed it. (laughs) Like, almost immediately. (laughs) Uh, It's good stuff. (laughs) Good stuff. If you're wondering, why didn't anyone do anything about these drug-addled, out-of-control cops? The answer is PPA President Stan Peters, one of the worst people to ever live in the city of Portland. He was a potent negotiator, though, and when the city negotiators angered him during a contract dispute, like, this is the story that everyone tells about Stan Peters, he was negotiating with the city for more money, and when they wouldn't play ball with him, he drew his gun and slammed it on the table and told them, these are my ground rules. Oh my god. I... Sorry, I just sat here. They can see I just sat here with my mouth open for like 30 straight seconds. I'm like, I, uh, they just they just keep outdoing themselves. It's like know, a it's parody amazing. of themselves. And they keep doing shit that is, again, literal criminal stuff. Right. <laughs> like the cops Which are I just think, a criminal. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, it's a thing. No, it's just a thing where like, I feel like we get desensitized to it. Like mm-hmm. I get desensitized to yeah. anything that they do because I'm just like, yeah, of course they're doing that. And then, you know, you know, with the protest that we were at, like someone outside would be like, wait, they're, you know, snatching people up in armed vans. And I'm like, oh, is that not normal? And they're like, that's yeah. not, they're not supposed to do that. And I'm like, oh, interesting. So like when they do that, I'm just like, oh yeah, I guess technically you're not supposed to do that. <laughs> yeah. It just seems like something they would do. There's a, there's an, a local cop that we all know, Brett Taylor, who yes. is most famous in the city of Portland for kind of randomly stabbing car tires during riots mm. um, yeah. for no real purpose that I can see most of the time. I originally knew him as cop who won't stop pointing his gun at people's heads. That's what he I was calling him. It was a that. long moniker, but he just, when yeah. everyone else would like point it at the ground, he would just be still have it at your head. But yeah, then he switched to just like really just hating car tires. Yeah, he he's, uh, he, uh, he really fucking loves to stab car tires. Does he have you a see the joy in his body language. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, he, uh, among other things, we had like a recent like, city like in testimony or whatever on on police violence and somebody Mm -hmm. came on who he had shot in the groin and brett had to testify that he had never knowingly targeted the groin area (laughs) and at another point he was talking about having addressed protesters and like he was stopped by the moderator they said by addressed you mean you threw grenades at them (laughs) 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 uh fucking love the portland police (laughs) They are cool then, they're cool now. Start a conversation with a grenade. (laughs) Oh, I love dialogue. So, (laughs) Stan, uh, the guy who negotiates with a handgun, wound Mm -hmm. up having an influence that extended far, far beyond the bounds of the Rose City. From pickets, pistols, and politics. Shortly after Peters became the union president, he introduced a concept that was relatively new to police officers, political involvement. Peters' predecessor, David Callison, had dabbled lightly, even inviting controversy by offering a PPA endorsement in a few local races. But Peters' scope was broader than that. He wanted the union to be a political force to be reckoned with. He was tired of the city and state officials writing roughshod over police with seemingly little interest in its rank-and-file concerns or causes. He wanted the police to be listened to. Better yet, he wanted politicians to quake in their boots if the police were not happy. Uh Uh-huh. Yep. And so he pulled his handgun out. 
Yeah, I mean, yes, he did do that. Um, yeah. He's also the start in a lot of ways of police nationwide getting directly involved in political races and having police unions directly endorse candidates and taking partisan stances. We can also yeah. thank the PPA for a lot of that. Yeah, no, I, yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. And that showed up mm-hmm. last month, this month. Gosh, it, yeah. every month is 100 month. years long. Yeah, um, I mean, every, showed up earlier yeah. this month. Yeah, every month of this year has lasted longer than all of the history we're covering in this podcast. Yeah. This is true. But you know what doesn't take long, Tuck? Goods and services. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't take long to <laughs> develop an appreciation for the fine products and services that support this podcast. Can't wait. The evidence keeps pouring in. At this point, the facts are undeniable. It's an open and shut case. Monopoly Go is the most fun you can have in a mobile game. Millions of people pass Go every day because this game is always bringing something new to the table. Countless crazy tournaments you can join with your friends as partners or teams. Constantly changing challenges like money sprees or treasure hunts that keep it fresh with new wild mini-games. Timed events offering bonuses like massive multipliers or rent frenzies to help you get huge rewards. And there's so many rewards to discover. Rare stickers you can trade with friends to complete albums. Delightful emojis to taunt people with when you raid their riches. Unique playing pieces and so much more. The verdict is in with Monopoly Go. There's something new to discover every time you play. So don't miss out. Go download it now for free on the App Store and Google Play. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpert. It's just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, My name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Are you ready to fight back against crime? Hi guys, Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies, personally investigating, prosecuting, and covering literally thousands of cases. It's so easy to think it will never happen to me or my family, but that is simply not true. Every day on Crime Stories with Nancy Grace, we shine a light on unsolved homicides, heat up cold cases, and help find missing people, especially children. We speak with family members, investigators, CSI, reporters, and experts in every field. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. In the recent history of documentary filmmaking, one scene stands out above all. The hot mic bathroom confession of Robert Durst in the Jinx. Now the person responsible for that moment, Sereb Kaufman, stepson of the victim, friend of the murderer, star of the documentary, for the first time ever, shares why he believes you're watching the furthest thing from the truth on this exclusive episode of Murder Homes. 
Listen to Murder Homes on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We are back. Okay, so the PPA had made history by becoming the first successful police union, and it made history again here by setting a precedent that police unions would involve themselves directly in local and eventually national races. Stan was clear that his motivation for doing this was to make local elected leaders afraid of him. This, he knew, was the only way that the Bureau could protect itself from the dangers of democracy. <laughs> Portland Police... <laughs> hmm Yeah. <laughs> Portland police were going to keep shooting people and engaging in rampant corruption. That was going to continue to piss Portlanders off. If they wanted to avoid real consequences for this behavior, the PPA would have to insert themselves into politics. So they started donating to city council candidates, paying to run ads attacking leaders who threatened to force any kind of accountability on them. Other police unions around the country paid attention and, true to form, followed suit. In 1979, one of those coke-addled narcotics cops we've been talking about, Officer David Crowther, was shot dead during a drug raid on a motorcycle gang. Since he was, I mean, I don't know specifically that he was a cokehead, but other Portland cops say the narcotics cops were all cokeheads. So one one assumes. <laughs> I am sorry if I unfairly <laughs> slandered him as a cokehead sorry just because he was in a unit of cokeheads. Um, <laughs> and there's nothing wrong with being a cokehead as long as you aren't also carrying out drug raids, you know? Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. No shame on cocaine. Uh, Weren't you wistfully tweeting about cocaine like yesterday? (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, it was mostly a joke. It's been a long time and happened in countries where it's legal. Let's just say that. Um, Yeah. So, uh, yeah, since he was, you know, possibly a cokehead cop who may very well have helped murder people, because, again, his unit definitely murdered at least one person and staged it as a suicide. I'm not going to say it was a tremendous tragedy that David Crowther got shot busting another gang. Um, But the hilariously pro-PPA book Pistols, Pickets, and Politics notes... The violent death of a fellow officer was a terrible blow to the members of the Portland Police Bureau and devastating to the drug unit, but it was not the end of the nightmare. And what that book calls a nightmare was the fact that Internal Affairs had opened an investigation into the murders, drug dealing, and drug abuse by numerous members of the Narcotics Division. (laughs) (laughs) What a nightmare! (laughs) Being held accountable for our actions, that's for other people. Yeah. I, too, have nightmares that I will get in trouble for doing a shitload of drugs and murdering people. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, one of the most damning complaints against the drug unit was that they had planted drugs on suspects in order to charge innocent people with felony crimes they had not committed. (laughs) But that's not the nightmare. The nightmare is not getting caught. The nightmare is them getting caught, yes. Now, I should note that police planting fake drugs or drugs that they stole from other people and then planting them on people who didn't have those drugs, this happens constantly all around the country. Uh, Google the Dallas fake drug scandal if you want another example of huge numbers of officers being involved in the planting of fake drugs on people. Anyway, law and order is important. Um, So... The internal affairs investigation was completed in the summer of 1980, and it led to the resignations of two officers who'd been assigned to the narcotics unit. One of those officers was later arrested on charges of illegally obtaining narcotics from a drug dealer with the intent to deal. He was convicted, and the PPA did not sue to get this cop back his job. So that's, we found a line. (laughs) (laughs) Mm The investigation revealed at least 59 cases where people had been convicted due to falsified evidence from Portland cops and 35 more cases that were in the process of being like, like argued out based on the same bogus evidence. And all of these cases, nearly 100 were overturned. 
Even oh. Officer Crowther's killer was released from prison after it was proven that the cops who testified at his trial had lied on the stand. Okay, that's very funny, actually. <laughs> that's extremely funny, because he's absolutely a murderer, and they just right. couldn't stop themselves from lying. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so guys, make sure you know he's an extra murderer. Yeah. Uh, I won't say you're shooting yourself in the foot, but maybe you're shooting your friend in the back. Wow. <laughs> like, yeah. So by the time 1981 rolled around, the Portland police were not doing particularly well in the uh, winning hearts and minds department. And things got worse for them on March 12th. The Burger Barn was at the time one of very few black-owned businesses in Portland. It was, of course, an albino. The cops claimed that the Burger Barn was a major gathering place for criminal activity. Gangsters and drug dealers and pimps would all the, meet there all the time. And I have no idea if this was true. Considering the fact that the PPB's whole drug unit was a bunch of cokehead murderers who planted fake drugs on people, I'm going to take what they say with a grain of salt here. <laughs> like, the PPA book, like, just sort of goes like, well, uh, criminals were gathering here, and cops were just so angry that, that that all these people they couldn't catch were always gathering at this restaurant. And that's why they did what they did. But it's like, they also lied all the time, so. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so as the story goes, two Portland police officers got fed up with all of the bad men hanging out at this restaurant, and they decided to get revenge with what the PPA's biographer describes as a prank. This prank involved gathering up four dead possums and dumping them at the doorway of the burger barn. Now, if you aren't aware, the word possum has been a derogatory slur for black people since the early 1800s. It has the same etymology as the use of, like, uh, the term raccoon as in the same sense. Like, they, they come from the same origin point. This was not a prank. By dumping dead possums at the door of a black-owned business, these these cops were making what amounted to a death threat, right? Like, that's what that means. Um, now, I wouldn't call it a prank. The officers took no steps to be stealthy about what they were doing. And according to the Powell family who owned the restaurant, this was just the latest in a long line of harassing actions from the Portland police. They believed this harassment was designed to scare away their customers and destroy the business. You should probably also keep in mind that while the Portland police claimed this restaurant was a famous haunt of drug dealers and pimps, uh, for literal decades, prostitution and drug dealing in Albino had been carried out under the approval and sometimes the direction of the Portland police. Um, yeah. So an investigation was launched and the officers responsible admitted what they'd done immediately. They were not publicly identified because there was a clause in the PPA contract that said officers who were disciplined should not be disciplined publicly. In other words, the PPA contract guaranteed that officers who harmed people would not be publicly named or punished, which some might suggest means they probably wouldn't be punished at all. This is now the standard nationwide. So, That's yeah. frustrating and consistent. It's, it's not great. Uh, it just now, reminds me of now when, uh, just for people who aren't aware, maybe everyone already is, uh, mm -hmm. they actually, yeah, covered all the name badges and numbers on the Portland police. And so there is actually no way to hold them accountable. And the only mm -hmm. thing you can do is, like, submit a description to PPB. And they're like, oh, yeah, we'll we'll look into it privately. You know, mm -hmm. <laughs> it's yeah. like you're not allowed to, like, name the person who shot you in the head because... Uh, that would be going too far, according to the PPA, apparently. That, that would be. But whenever they arrest people, they will tweet out uh, the names. All of their of, identifying of information. Yeah, yeah. All those people are getting doxxed. Oh, it's sorry. fair. Fair is what it is. <laughs> fair. It's cool, good, just, cool law and order. Just, yeah. Now, 
uh, in this case, there was enough public outrage that the PPA couldn't just sweep things under the rugs and do an internal investigation. The officers responsible, Craig Ward and Jim Galloway, voluntarily appeared at a press conference before black community leaders. They identified themselves and apologized. And I'm going to quote here from Pickett's Pistols in Politics. Ward and Galloway claimed they had acted out of frustration, not racial hatred, when they made their late night deposit of the possums at the restaurant's door. But the black community, already incensed over incidents of alleged discrimination by police, labeled the possum dumping as more evidence of racism and deliberate targeting of blacks by police. Just a month and a half earlier, Black United Front co-chairman Ron Herndon and neighborhood activist Vesia Loving had called on the United Nations to investigate human rights violations in the Oregon because of the high percentage of blacks that had, they said had been killed by police over the previous 10 years. Um, yeah, I didn't realize that people had called on the UN to investigate Oregon police for racism. Um, Probably not the last time. But would, yeah, nope. that's wild. Yeah, yeah, we could use another UN investigation, although that would probably just increase the conspiracy theories that Antifa is part of a UN scheme to take over the United States. Is that actually an already a conspiracy oh, yeah, theory? absolutely. I yeah. missed that one with the UN. There's too mm-hmm. many. Antifa's doing too much at once. It's hard <laughs> to keep track. Yeah. I, I, I wasn't going to throw out criticisms here, but I do think they're they're going a little bit broad. Um, <laughs> they're trying to provide respirators. <laughs> they're making soup for my family, and they're taking yeah. over the UN. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so the Black United Front is one of the advocacy groups that I don't think they'd formed over the outrage in Ricky Johnson's death, but they had really like come together in a big way after that, because a number of groups that formed after Johnson's death had been merged into the United Front. They gave a press conference themselves where they pointed out that the possum incident was part of a pattern of police harassment of black Portlanders. The PPA's paid biographer writes, begrudgingly, the people of Portland seemed to agree. For the most part, public sympathy lay with the Powell family and the black community, not with the police. Gasp. I'm so proud of everybody. (laughs) They figured it out. Yeah. 200 protesters picketed City Hall, and lo and behold, this forced the police chief and commissioner to fire officers Ward and Galloway. Great! Surely that's the end of the story. (laughs) (laughs) And no one ever did anything racist again. Uh, No, uh, no. They immediately did something racist because Stan Peters was still the head of the Portland Police Association, and Mm -hmm. he was pissed as hell. Quote, it appeared that no one was willing to stand up for Ward and Galloway. No one but Stan Peters. As president of the Portland Police Association, it was his duty to protect the rights of members. Once the executive board determined that Ward and Galloway had not committed a crime and that they had a legitimate grievance due to their summary dismissal from their jobs, the union, led by Peters, rose up to defend them. This is good. It's so cool that they just like, I want to make sure that you have your yeah. legal right to be racist. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Uh, the PPA was saying that as long as Portland cops didn't break the law, it was okay for them to racially harass citizens. Right. (laughs) Like, that's the argument Peters is making. Peters was a rampaging racist and sexist, by the way. Yeah, oh, yeah. I could tell from your intro. Is he? Yeah, it's it's like that. Oh, good. Is he this, this dude with the terrible mustache, Robert? Yes. Yeah. You know, he has a mustache by the name Stan Peters and the fact that he was a cop like he has to have had a mustache. The universe would have shattered into a thousand pieces if he had been a clean shaven man. I was like, this is a terrible face. I'm guessing this is the right guy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, he's he's he looks exactly if you just picture an old timey cop in your head, it's Stan Peters, like 70s cop. Yeah. Yeah. I just it just reminds me so much of like. Mm-hmm. Not Sam Peters and his face. I don't know about that. But um, it just reminds me so much about, like, people who somehow conflate the Second Amendment with, like, 
the right to say whatever the fuck you want and still keep your job. It's like that yeah. thing. It's like, oh, because yeah. you legally can threaten people's lives by leaving dead possums outside of their job, you also should be able to keep your job and still do that because those yeah. two things are the same. Also, uh, I would guess that if uh, protesters made an explicit death threat towards officers in a similar way to the officers had threatened to kill uh, members of the Powell family, they would probably be arrested. Hmm... I don't know. Some people (laughs) made some death threats against me, and all I get to do is say, hope they don't kill me. (laughs) Well, yeah, but, you know, you're not a cop, Tuck. No, I know. (laughs) Made a mistake. Just kidding. (laughs) Should have been a cop, then your life would matter. (laughs) Uh, Wow, I just opened the photo, and it is truly everything I imagined and more. (laughs) Yeah. He does have hair, and I kind of imagine him being bald. He does have some top mm. hair wow this mustache yeah i know it is a it is a cop stash it is a powerful cop stash he's like leaning against a desk yeah. just like it fucking rules don't mean to stereotype but he is cop ugly <laughs> yeah no he looks he looks like a cop if you saw him on the street and you were a director and you were trying to cast a cop you'd be like yeah. hey like let me get your digits <laughs> this does look more like the still from a hollywood film about an mm-hmm. old-timey cop than it does an actual old-timey cop yeah, yeah he looks like the guy who like yells at dirty harry for shooting too right. many people but in exactly. reality stan peters never yelled at anyone for shooting too many people <laughs> he was like you didn't shoot enough people this month <laughs> why are there so many alive people in this town <laughs> uh yeah so um yeah, the Stan Peters makes the union rise up to defend these officers who were fired for making racist threats. And this was actually pretty groundbreaking. Um, thanks to the PPA, it was common for unions around the country to weigh in on disciplinary matters when cops did bad stuff. Um, and officers could appeal punishments for bad behaviors. But once a cop was fired, they tended to stay fired. Stan Peters set out to change that. First, he demanded the case go to binding arbitration, which the contract allowed him to do. Then he organized a petition drive to fire the police commissioner. He sent ballots to the PPA members to get a vote of no confidence in both the chief and the police commissioner. And last but not least, he announced a protest march to compete with the Black United Front's march. This one would consist of off-duty cops, their family members, and local supporters. So this is back the blue versus Black Lives Matter thing? Okay, cool. What year is this? This is 1981. Okay. Yep. Cool. The PPA's march gathered a staggering 850 people, waving signs that said, Reinstate the blue too, justice, not politics, and may the force be with you, Craig and Jim. Star Wars was (laughs) pretty new at the time. Um, (laughs) Fucking nerds. Uh, Many police elements, including sharpshooters, protected the march, which is interesting because it was a private organization doing a march being protected by public funds in a way that I'll guarantee you the Black United Front protesters weren't protected. Sure didn't. Not a thing that ever happened again, say repeatedly. Um, (laughs) So some brave counter-protesters did show up with pig's heads on spikes, which infuriated Stan Peters. Um, And kudos to those folks. Uh, Mm -hmm. But on the whole, the march was a massive success for the PPA. All the pressure exercised by Peters eventually did its job. The arbitrator decided that termination of both officers had been too harsh a penalty. Both men were reinstated to their jobs. This would turn out to be quite possibly the most influential thing the Portland police ever did. From Pickets, Pistols, and Politics. The city of Portland versus Ward and Galloway case is still the leading police discipline case in the United States. And in labor law circles, it is the arbitration decision referred to most often. Its legal nomenclature is simply City of Portland. 
So you know what? We started this by saying that 25% of all fired cops in some cities more like 70 get reinstated by union appeals. Yeah. The legal underpinning of that is City of Portland. That is the name of the case that is most often referred to when police firings are appealed. <sighs> what a cool <laughs> city mm-hmm. that I live in. What so a great proud legacy to be here. <laughs> we have a lot of roses too. <laughs> you know, Robert, it's okay because as we were discussing right mm-hmm. before this, there is a current lawsuit that I'm not allowed to talk about called Woodstock versus City of Portland. And we're just going to slide that one in. And that's going to mm-hmm. be the one everyone references now. Mm-hmm. Make the city. <laughs> yeah. Fingers crossed, Tuck. Fingers <laughs> crossed. <laughs> so I found an interesting interview with labor historian Norman Diamond on the website Street Roots. He was actually on the Portland Labor Board uh, when all this was going on. So he's very familiar with how the PPA works, because, again, like the PPA was part of the Labor Board at this point. And he pointed out that initially the PPA's goal was, quote, if any of our members commits an act subject to discipline, we want them to have union representation. That's reasonable. Their claim was cops have to have the same rights as anybody else in society. And I do agree with that. But, he says, with successive contracts, they extended those rights beyond anything the rest of us have. Now, in the event of a shooting, you can't question a police officer until two days have passed. Their superiors can't. The district attorney's office can't. And that's part of the labor contract. So they have a chance to meet with other officers involved in the shooting to get their stories straight and go over everything with their lawyers. And then after two days, they can bring back what becomes the official version. I'm sorry, what the fuck? Yeah, so that's they something that the Portland... They're like, hey, yeah, it's yeah. really just like you. your union means that or your union says you get to have this specified collusion yep. time. Mm-hmm. And now that's very common around the entire country because of the Portland police. I can't even like fully process that because it's just mm-hmm. so obviously yeah. corrupt. I right. I mean, that's what we're saying this whole time, right? It's like every single thing in Drew, it's like you're not being yeah. subtle about it. You're just like, yeah. oh, here's like me being just like literally doing criminal things, yeah. but yeah. I'm the cops. And so I just get to do it. Yeah. You know, when the... When the this year's like big protest started up after George Floyd's murder, I was kind of there was there was an element of me that was like, you know, Portland's not a big city and our police department is not a big police department. And it's not a nationally. It wasn't at least now it's more famous. It was not a nationally famous police department. And it seemed strange to me that this city would become the nexus of so much resistance to the police And it makes more sense now because the Portland police are the center nationwide of a lot of our problems with police violence and brutality. Like, I wish it worked in reverse where like, oh, Portland started all of it. And so if something happened to Portland police, like every other police station, like like, by something happened, I mean, like contractually, like legally, like something got taken away. Then it's like, oh, that actually just ripples out to everywhere. But I have a feeling it doesn't work in reverse. No, it would not. It's going to require an agonizing and probably decades-long process of, yeah, good times. In 1985, Portland police responded to a shoplifting incident at a 7-Eleven. They noticed a fight happening in the store's parking lot, and the PPA's biographer describes it tellingly as, between two white men and a tall black man. It's interesting to me that they didn't feel the need to describe any of the physical attributes of the white men. Um... Nope. Gotta know he's tall. So the cops decided that this tall black man must be responsible for whatever was happening, and they put him in a sleeper hold 
which killed him. It turned out that the victim, Lloyd Stevenson, was a former Marine and a father of five, as well as a security guard at Fred Meyer. More outrage swept through the city. The city government acted quickly, banning the police from using chokeholds. Seems kind of familiar. I think we've heard this story before. Of course, the police complained. Portland police were trained to use force in gradually escalating levels from one to six. Level one is the presence of a cop. Level two is voice commands. Level three is physical restraint. Level four is the carotid artery uh, hold that killed Lloyd. And level five is the use of a nightstick or mace. And six is, of course, deadly force. But of course, really, so was four because the carotid hold killed people. Yeah. Now, the Portland police complained that taking their chokehold away would escalate things dangerously, leaving them with less non-lethal options to respond to crime with. Because most (laughs) cops didn't like to carry nightsticks because they were heavy and thought carrying mace was a hassle, so just all they would have is a gun. Oh, my God. Like, this will give us, basically, this will say that this will make our only option be shooting people. Um, Right. Now, yeah. If you don't let us kill them this way, we'll have to kill them this other way because we can't carry mace around. Because it's we can't, too like, heavy. It's too heavy, mace. <laughs> <laughs> Two Portland cops, Monty and Wickersham, were particularly angry at being banned from choking people. And the PPA biography notes that they were in the process of being trained to give chokeholds at the time. So it kind of leaves you with the impression that, like, they were so excited to choke people and then they got their power. Like, oh, what? I don't get to choke anybody now. I'm new to being a cop. Come on. <laughs> Do you say their names are Monty and Wickershims? Monty and Wickersham. Yeah, they sound British as hell. <laughs> they do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Couple of bobbies in the uh, in the old PPA. <laughs> they like they yeah. traveled here because they're like, I hear you get to choke people more in the Portland <laughs> Police Bureau. Yeah. Uh. It's funny, when I was a little conservative. Well, I guess more conservative than I am now. I remember a video circulating around that was like a bunch of British cops, like like a circle of them all around one man with a machete. And they had like mm-hmm. chairs, I think, and were like like basically <laughs> like all in a huge circle trying to like calm this, like stop this guy from swinging a knife and eventually de-escalated him and nobody died. And it was like portrayed as like, look how silly it is because English cops don't have guns. This is what it takes to deal with a man with a machete. And it's like, well, but... They didn't kill anybody. Right, it <laughs> Like, worked. everyone walked away alive. Isn't this a good story? <laughs> yeah. We're going to arm everyone with chairs now. They're mm-hmm. going to be heavy, but no mm-hmm. one's going to die. <laughs> yeah. So... I'm going to quote here from the PPA's biography. Uh, Monty and Wickersham reacted to the situation with the typical black humor of police officers. They had T-shirts printed with the slogan, Don't choke them, smoke them. No. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no. reaction. Yeah. 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 No, it's just the typical black humor of police officers. <laughs> Making a t-shirt about an innocent man you choke to death. Good times. Uh. Uh. I mean, as someone ma- who's wearing a novelty police violence t-shirt right now, I guess mm-hmm. I can't talk, but it's a little different. Uh, someone in the city of Portland has found a Don't Choke em, Smoke em t-shirt at, like, a fucking vintage store, like, and didn't know what it was for. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, the biography goes on to state, the message they wished to convey was clear. If the carotid hold was no longer available to police, why not just shoot? Why not? <laughs> why not? What else are we going to do? Law enforcement? Bad to shoot people? (laughs) Yeah. They started selling the t-shirts in the Justice Center's break room on the exact same day of Lloyd Stevenson's funeral. Um, Classy. 
Classy. They were fired, and the case went into arbitration. The union argued that the officer's apparent insensitivity had been unintentional because the officers hadn't known that Stevenson's funeral was taking place the same day. The firings were overturned, and the officers reinstated. Uh, mm. You know, I am loving this city of Portland, mm-hmm. citing more and more every time a <laughs> yeah. cop gets their job back. Yeah, it's great. Ugh. You know what's better than people mocking a murder victim and then getting back pay? Fuck, Robert. I would say, honestly, most things, but po- yeah. possibly products and services. D- uh, yeah, very certainly products and services. The evidence keeps pouring in. At this point, the facts are undeniable. It's an open and shut case. Monopoly Go is the most fun you can have in a mobile game. Millions of people pass Go every day because this game is always bringing something new to the table. Countless crazy tournaments you can join with your friends as partners or teams. Constantly changing challenges like money sprees or treasure hunts that keep it fresh with new wild mini-games. Timed events offering bonuses like massive multipliers or rent frenzies to help you get huge rewards. And there's so many rewards to discover. Rare stickers you can trade with friends to complete albums, delightful emojis to taunt people with when you raid their riches, unique playing pieces, and so much more. The verdict is in with Monopoly Go. There's something new to discover every time you play. So don't miss out. Go download it now for free on the App Store and Google Play. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halper. Just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, My name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Are you ready to fight back against crime? Hi guys, Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies, personally investigating, prosecuting, and covering literally thousands of cases. It's so easy to think it will never happen to me or my family, but that is simply not true. Every day on Crime Stories with Nancy Grace, we shine a light on unsolved homicides, heat up cold cases, and help find missing people, especially children. We speak with family members, investigators, CSI, reporters, and experts in every field. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. In the recent history of documentary filmmaking, one scene stands out above all. The hot mic bathroom confession of Robert Durst in The Jinx. Now the person responsible for that moment, Sereb Kaufman, stepson of the victim, friend of the murderer, star of the documentary, for the first time ever, shares why he believes you're watching the furthest thing from the truth on this exclusive episode of Murder Homes. 
Listen to Murder Homes on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We are back. Okay, so there have been a lot of horrible crimes committed by the Portland police and defended by the PPA. We've gone through a number of them. Um, We only have so much time in our lives and in this episode, so in the sake of brevity, I'm going to outline just one more. And this time, the victim is not a black man. It's a 12-year-old boy. Oh, good. (laughs) Yeah. In 1992, a home invader broke into the house where Nathan Thomas, the aforementioned 12-year-old child, and his parents lived. The police arrived while the invader was in the house, and the man grabbed Nathan as a hostage and held a knife to his throat. The home invader was 20 years old, drunk, and reportedly suicidal. Now, this is obviously a nightmare situation. And, like, right, my criticisms of the police aside, there's not going to be a perfect way to handle this. This, could, this. There's a good chance that he would have died no matter what had happened. This is a bad situation. That said, the tactic the cops chose to deal with this hostage situation was, shall I say, less than delicate. Instead of doing any of the kind of things you might expect police to do during a a hostage situation that threatens the life of a 12-year-old, five different Portland officers opened fire from outside of the house with their handguns, pumping dozens of rounds into the house. The hostage taker was shot 14 times. Nathan was also shot, and he died in the hospital. Just five guys start shooting into the building. What's even the point at that point? Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. ostensibly, you're there to help the You're not. But, yeah. like, ostensibly, they're there to help the kid. Yep. But they're not. So why they're are they not. there? Just and it's also like, <sighs> I will say, it can be justified to use a firearm in that situation. But you don't use a pistol. Right. You don't you don't try from outside of a house to I I shoot a lot of handguns. Right. They're very inaccurate compared Mm -hmm. to a rifle. Like they are only good at short distances and they are not for precision work. That's not what a handgun's for. Um, You would have a sniper come in and try to shoot the guy threatening a 12 year old. That's a reasonable time to use a sniper. They just had five guys start shooting handguns into the building. Um, It's so fucked up. The president of the PPA at the time was a guy named Morse, and he showed up on the scene with a PPA lawyer as soon as he heard that his cops had gunned down a small child. Now, I want to read you this next paragraph from Pickett's Pistols and Politics because it has to be one of the most sociopathic things I have ever read in my entire life. As the father of three young sons, Morse's heart went out to the family of Nathan Thomas. The boy's accidental death was devastating, but Morse, a Marine Corps veteran and a longtime police officer, was a man who had been thoroughly trained to maintain his focus and perform his duty, no matter how much he heard inside. As he dialed the telephone number and contacted one sleepy lawyer after another, his focus was on the five police officers who needed his help. (sighs) Cool stuff. Good guys. (laughs) So I just even just calling it like an accidental death. And it's like, I'm not convinced it was an accident. I don't think you no. can just have five people shooting handguns into a house and be like yeah. that. Oh, oops. Oops. If, someone died. If five people shoot handguns into a house filled with people, what you're saying, because I love nonverbal communication and the nonverbal communication that you're giving off when you and four other men fire handguns into a house is I don't really care who I hit inside that house. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Uh, so, uh, obviously, um, none of these guys were fired, uh, or no. seriously disciplined for Why shooting wildly. <laughs> yeah. Uh, now don't worry though, Tuck. The PPA's biographer wants us all to know that the police cared about what had happened and they wanted to make it right. <laughs> uh-huh. Quote. 
The association's concern for youngsters was demonstrated in a gesture of grief and sympathy after the death of Nathan Thomas. A few weeks after the boy's death, the union contributed $250 to the American Cancer Society. Nathan had received treatment for Hodgkin's disease and was in remission at the time of his death, and $250 to the Nathan Thomas Soccer Scholarship Fund. Nathan was the member of a soccer team. So that's good. Yeah. I always say, if you just kill a 12-year-old kid for no reason, Mm -hmm. just donate $250 to a (laughs) soccer team, and it's all fine. That's fine. Now, they, I will say, they, uh, the family of Nathan also reached out to the police later because they were working to raise money to build a soccer field in Nathan's memory at Laurelhurst Park, uh, which mm-hmm. is near where he lived. Um, and the PPA did contribute $5,000 to the soccer field. Oh. So that's more money. Yeah, they love to sponsor soccer. Yeah, they're big soccer fans. Do you think we can get them to defund PPB if we tell them that we just need to raise more money for mm-hmm. soccer? A lot of soccer fields. That might do the trick, Tuck. <laughs> <laughs> Not so, that I would want to defund PPB. I'm an uh, objective journalist objective with journalist. no skin in this game. Anyway, yeah. go ahead. Yeah. As a journalist, opinions are uh, obviously forbidden. <laughs> now, there are a number of important things I didn't cover in this series, like how PPA President Stan Peters hated the idea of woman cops and non-white cops and deliberately made the union unwelcoming to them. Cool. I felt like focusing on the travails of police officers, even like, like obviously, I. it's weird because like I don't think we should have cops. If we're going to have them, yeah, everyone should have the equal opportunity to be a cop, I guess. But I didn't want to focus on that in this episode, as opposed to all of the horrible things that the police did. Um, Yeah, but Stan Peters, super racist, and there was a whole fight within the union to make it less racist. That's a thing that happened. Um, So, you know, in the sake of fairness, I wanted to note that. Um, Yeah, I do want to close, though, by talking some more about the PPB's infamous Red Squad. In 1974, the mayor of Portland assured the city's liberal population that the Red Squad had been disbanded. This was a lie, and they later learned that year that it had just been renamed the Intelligence Division and was actively keeping tabs on suspicious characters at the Oregon ACLU. Um, (laughs) Gotta keep an eye on them ACLU folks. (laughs) In November 1986, local press published rumors that the Red Squad had been secretly reestablished as a new entity under the name Criminal Intelligence Division, presumably as part of a renewed Red Scare of the Reagan years. The police denied this, admitting that the Criminal Intelligence Division existed, but claiming that it does not monitor peaceful or public activities and does not target groups or individuals. But that's Mm -hmm. true, right? Mm Mm-hmm. I'm going to quote next from a write-up by Michael Monk. In 1992, Officer Seward, officially detailed to spy on radicals and subversives, attended and submitted a confidential report on a meeting by a coalition of peace, labor, and environmental groups to discuss a civilian police review board. One of the victims of that surveillance sued Portland for a violation of his civil rights four years later and won a $2,000 award in court. Although the court decision was not reported by the Oregonian, it led to public hearings on the Red Squad in 1996 by the Metropolitan Commission on Human Rights. Although denied press coverage even by the Willamette Week, the commission grilled Red Squad Commander Lieutenant Larry Findling and Sergeant Norman Sharp. They admitted they used paid agents, volunteer informers, and other techniques to monitor dissenters and agreed that even the reasonable suspicion of something as trivial as trespass triggers their response. The MCHR proposed a series of controls on the Red Squad to Mayor Katz. Not only did the mayor reject the proposals, she dismantled the MCHR. Yeah, Portland's got a long tradition of good mayors. Nothing but quality 
in Portland Mares. I was trying to make a joke earlier about Bearcats being good, and I'm so glad it didn't work out. <laughs> mm-hmm. Nope. <laughs> Turns out leaders are bad. So, the Red Squad spent the end of the 1990s violating the civil rights of dissidents. In October of 1999, it sent an undercover agent to spy on protesters opposing Bill Clinton's air war on Iraq. In 2000, on May Day, the Red Squad's black van videotaped the faces of demonstrators who hadn't actually broken any laws, which is, again, a crime. Right. It's a that's criming. The Red Squad's behavior was egregious enough that they pissed off Circuit Court Judge Michael Marcus, who ordered the Oregon police to stop tracking citizens who aren't breaking the law. Two years later, information surfaced that they were still doing that. It is currently against Oregon law for them to surveil lawful demonstrators, but we can only assume the Red Squad is still doing what it always did, whatever name it operates under now. And anyway, that's the story of the Portland Police and the Portland Police Association. Yay! <laughs> I will rest easy knowing that I'm definitely not being surveilled by the Red Squad because it doesn't exist anymore. And Mm -hmm. uh, they stopped it. They're just chill and cool now. Mm -hmm. Things are good. Thanks, Robert. I appreciate knowing this context that not only are things bad now, but they always always have been bad. And there was Mm -hmm. plenty of time to fix it. And we just didn't. Yeah, but, you know, this inspires me to kick the can right down the road to the next generation of people. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Can't even go to the Burger Barn. That story made me just want to go to the Burger Barn and support the Burger Barn. It doesn't even exist anymore. Yeah. That's the real tragedy. 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 I don't know. My brain stopped when you said Willamette Week. I was like, what? And I missed the Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think that was a, uh, uh, either they changed their name or that was the name they used to operate under. I don't know enough No, it is Willamette. It's Willamette Week, but it. Oh, it is. I thought it was weekly. No, it's Willamette Week, but it was like Willamette Week versus Willamette Week. It's like a very non-Portland pronunciation. And I'm like, Robert, where are you from? I'm from here. Get out of here. Yeah, no. No, I'm like the Portland police. I'm not a Portland. (laughs) I don't live here. (laughs) That is. I mean, I do live here. Came no, yeah, but that came up in my head when we were talking about the police the whole time. Is like, at what point did they stop living in Portland? You know. Yeah, and I, I don't have good information on that. Um, yeah, I figured. But yeah, it is, people should know that about 82% of Portland police live outside the city, many of them in another state, Washington. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. It's cool stuff. It's cool and good. Yeah, cool and good. So, Tuck, you got anything to plug? Yep. Uh, still, much like mm-hmm. in the last episode, I still make a podcast about gender the new season is dropping right around when this episode drops Mm -hmm. and we have programs to uh provide money for housing medication food really basic things for trans people particularly black indigenous trans people and trans people of color so if anyone wants to contribute to any of that they can go to patreon.com slash gender that's patreon.com slash gender awesome patreon.com slash gender and also we have if you're if you're listening to this and we're like boy portland is and its problem with cops is more interesting than i thought it was we have a podcast about that called uprising and it's about everything that happened in portland this summer um please check that out uh again uprising it's a podcast that's more things about portland that will frustrate you (laughs) there's never enough 
<laughs> yeah, never enough. A lot of great audio of things exploding, though. Um, oh, God. So if you were yeah, like, my we... headphones haven't triggered me yet. <laughs> That's what I was going to say. I was like, oh, that sounds cool to listen to. No, I have PTSD. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Trigger warning, the podcast. <laughs> uh, podcast. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. In the recent history of documentary filmmaking, one scene stands out above all. The hot mic bathroom confession of Robert Durst in The Jinx. Now the person responsible for that moment, Sereb Kaufman, stepson of the victim, friend of the murderer, star of the documentary, for the first time ever, shares why he believes you're watching the furthest thing from the truth on this exclusive episode of Murder Homes. Listen to Murder Homes on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister, starting May 6th on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying a, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio, season nine. Love, Love at, at first, first listen. listen. We're older, we're wiser, and we're podcasting through a new decade of our lives. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again and getting to the heart of our stories we're going places we've never gone before and we're bringing you along with us with new segments correspondence and a brand new sound season nine is kicking off with an intimate interview with grammy award-winning singer-songwriter natalia laforcade what's giving you hope right now well when i see what music does to people it gives me a lot of hope. If you liked Locatora before, you're going to love Season 9. Subscribe to our show and you'll see why Locatora is your prima's favorite podcast. Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the Michael Cultura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.